Well, again, welcome. It's the third week of Advent, a time when we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So far, we've looked at these, these themes in Scripture of hope and peace, and this week we're going to be looking at joy, joy that comes through the, the Advent of Christ. To do so, we're going to look at the announcement that the angels made to the shepherds at this amazing event. It's recorded in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 8 through 14. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Luke. Chapter 2, we'll read through 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The grass withers, the flower fades. I read a story about a conference that took place at a Presbyterian church in Omaha, Nebraska, not far from here, some years ago. And at one point during this conference, they gave everyone in attendance a balloon that was filled with helium. Fairly large church filled up, and everyone had this balloon, and they were told to release this balloon when they felt some sense of joy, some emotion or thankfulness to God, anything along those lines, they were to release it and let it float up to the sky. And Really, the, the story as I read this cracked me up because the reason they gave for this, giving the balloons out, was that they were Presbyterians, and so therefore they're not allowed to shout hallelujah or praise the Lord or, or uh, anything of that nature. So they handed out balloons because that wouldn't be more awkward. <laughs> so for the record, we're not that kind of Presbyterians. If you want to shout hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord, go right ahead and do it. I'd love it. In fact, a few times I've been someplace where someone did that, I kind of liked it. Uh, You know, at the the very least, I know that guy is not asleep, (laughs) and and that's encouraging to me. So anyway, at this conference, they handed out these these balloons in Omaha, and everyone had their balloons, and they were told to release them when they felt joy during the service. As the service went on, every so often, a balloon would would go up, and you'd get to see, okay, that person's experienced some sort of joy, and, and think through that, and yet... By the end of it, what really surprised them was that a third of the people in the room were still sitting there holding on to their balloon at the end of this worship service. And you read this, and I just want to say, Christian, let your balloon go. Uh, More than any other people on this planet, we ought to experience real joy. So often we we talk about joy this time of year. We sing about it. We we get these ideas of fresh-baked cookies, time with family, relaxing by the fire. But it's also easy to find ourselves this time of year lacking joy in major ways. It's easy to get depressed this time of year. Long car rides crammed with grumpy children, with grumpy parents in the front seat. Even sadder things, memories of, of those who have passed away. Missing family, missing friends who aren't there with you. Uh, either physically or emotionally. Uh, We think we can hide our feelings. I I think we think that. Well, you know, smile real big, open your eyes real big, everything's great. But the truth is, 
we're not very good at hiding our feelings. In fact, there's an actual word in our language that communicates the way that our face tells people how we feel. Countenance. You don't use that very often. If you've heard it, it's probably because it's, it's often a, a benediction, a, a good word that's given at the end of a service. Numbers 6, 24 through 36 uses this word. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and, and give you peace. See, that's a spoken blessing, asking that God would look on us with joy, that his face would be lifted up. And so our faces can hide feelings, but, but like I said before, they're, they're not very good at that. Dudley Hall once made this statement, countenance is a press conference that your face calls to give the state of the union of your soul. Proverbs 15:13 makes the similar statement. It says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. Our faces are similar to a dog's tail. When they experience joy, they cannot help but wag. And so think for a moment. Think about the facial expressions that you have been looking on lately. Maybe the facial expressions you have probably been showing lately. Is it often joy? You know, it's fitting here to remind ourselves that joy is is not the same thing as happiness. It's similar, but not the exact same thing. Happiness is a mere feeling that is based on a situation as the situations change, so does uh, all of our feelings. You do not have to have happiness to have joy. It's a good reminder that the angels didn't announce good news of great happiness. It was great joy. Joy that transcends any situation. And to remember just that joy is a gift of God, and it's a fruit of the Spirit that he gives to his people. So what I want you to see in our, our text today is that when heaven meets earth, our only right response is this real and lasting joy. Just as when we looked at hope and when we looked at peace in the weeks before, my prayer is that you won't feel pride for having joy today, nor that you would feel shame for lack of joy today. Rather, my prayer is that you would engage in the battle for joy and to do so as we focus on on the truth of the Advent and all that the coming of Jesus means for us. Because... The truth is, what we experience on a daily basis is wave after wave of interactions and situations that seek to steal our joy. And the solution is not to stop the waves that come, but that we seek refuge in the one, the only one who can overcome the waves. In John 16, Jesus tells us, in the world, we will experience tribulation. Jesus also says, I have overcome the world. What this means is we're going to experience frustration, persecution, stress. Uh, We're going to face depressions. Uh, But Jesus has overcome that. And I know you might be thinking, yeah, Jesus has overcome that. He's overcome tribulations, but I haven't. And really, that's kind of the point here. John Piper speaks to this point saying, the fight for joy is not a struggle to carry a burden but a struggle to let a burden be carried for us. The life of joy in God is not a a burdened life. It's an unburdened life to trust God with the burdens of life. Christian, don't try to face this life carrying your burdens. Trust God. This is, is where true joy comes to life. Now, 
I want to draw your attention back to our text. At the, the time that this scripture is, is, is written originally, the Jewish people were under the Roman Empire. The time of what we're talking about here. Caesar Augustus puts out a decree, and really that's just this official order. And, and this decree said that everyone must be registered. It's a census. It's gathering everyone together for the purpose of, of taxing them. Even then, here in the United States, we do the census every 10 years. The most recent one was back in 2010, and we count everyone. We're much more efficient than the way they were. We actually count people where they are. They required people to come back to wherever they were from. But the reason that you drive into a town or a city, often you'll see that sign out front that says population 500 or whatever it might be. So anyway, they head back to where they're from. And part of this is interesting is that Mary's not from Bethlehem, but Joseph is. Uh, and since they were engaged to be married, she went with them, which is really no big deal until you remember what's written in the prophets uh, about this town of Bethlehem. In, in, in Micah 5.2, uh, speaking of the future Messiah, it says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, by the time that Christ is born, that prophecy is 700 years old. And it says that the king is going to come from Bethlehem. And this prophecy is crazy because Bethlehem is this tiny little town of no real significance. Kansas is full of towns like this. It'd be like predicting that our, our next president's going to come from Paola, Kansas. Most of you would think, really, where's that? That's actually where Travis is from. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to your town. One of the really amazing things about this, though, that the way that this went down is that there are more direct ways that, that God could have accomplished this, that God could have fulfilled this prophecy back in Micah. For instance, the angel Gabriel visits Mary. He could have just said, and by the way, Mary, when you have this baby, go to Bethlehem. Piece of cake. could have told Joseph the same thing. He, he could have just teleported them there. Uh, or, or really, if God wanted to make this whole thing really easy, why not just pick a girl who lives in Bethlehem to begin with? Instead, God shows us that the words in Proverbs 21.1 aren't just interesting sounding or cool sounding words. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. We see the sovereign working of God. And to fulfill those words that God gave to Micah back then, he turns the heart of the highest ranking person in the empire, turns his heart to call for a census that will result in Mary and Joseph traveling all the way back to Bethlehem. And as the story of, of Christ's birth unfolds, almost every step that we see is not the way that really most of us would do it. First, God sends a Messiah who is a fragile baby. God created the first man, Adam, as an adult, or at least not as a little, little baby. Uh, Eve's also not created a baby, but comes into the world as a woman. If I'm sending a savior, he's going to be an adult. Uh, and he's going to look like Russell Crowe on the cover of 300, tall and muscular, intimidating, the kind of guy that could just tear things in half. And, and yet when God sends a king, when, when Jesus comes as our savior, he starts as a zygote in the womb of Mary. He experiences human birth. The very person whom the universe was created through 
But laid in the arms of his mother, who nursed him and raised him. Let that sink in. The very creator of the universe in the arms of his mother. And then consider the way that this royal birth is announced to the world. I'm thinking, really wait until our time period. We can put it on TV. We can broadcast it around the world. Uh, almost like the, the most recent royal baby that happened in England, Prince George. The whole planet knew about that birth. In fact, they, they had an actual town crier. I don't know. Any of you see the picture of this town crier? Uh, you've got to look it up if you haven't. This guy is in this elaborate costume. He looks like a cartoon pirate. And, and he comes out and he shouts this announcement, which he's reading from an actual scroll, about what's happening. Really, though, we, we look at the birth of Christ, though. At the very least, you'd expect these angels to go to someone important. They're going to go to someone very important in the country and announce, here comes the birth of the Christ. But that's not the way that God does it. Our Savior is born in a lowly stable in the tiny town of Bethlehem. And who is this announced to? Verse 8 tells us it's to the shepherds. Lower class, not criminals, but lower class. At the time of Jesus' birth, shepherds were sort of like blue-collar workers who were off the radar of the higher class. But they didn't think about them that much. They were separated from most of society, spending their time out in the fields with sheep, caring for them. And so basically, if you want to get news out about an event, about the Savior of the world being born, the very last people, literally almost the last people you would pick, is, is shepherds. And yet that's just what God does. And so imagine if you can, these, these shepherds, they're, they're tending their flock, it says it's, it's night, it's in darkness, just sitting out there, maybe they're talking to each other, and suddenly, bam, bright, shining angels appear to them. And how do the shepherds respond? Our, our, our text tells us they respond filled with great fear. It's something along the lines of that feeling we get when we think we're in a room all by ourselves, and suddenly someone jumps out from behind someone and screams at you and you just respond by screaming like a girl. Only we get this relief when you realize, oh, it's just me and, and it's over. <laughs> they didn't get that. They didn't get that relief at all, that, that initial shock of, ah, there's an angel here, and, and they're standing there, and as soon as they calm down for a second, there's still some scary creature glowing before them. And so, of course, this angel tells them, do not fear. I can only imagine what the, the shepherds are thinking, really, not fear? But this is the exact response that, that everyone has when they've interacted with angels. We see it in Scripture over and over. When, when, when the angel visits Mary initially, she is afraid. When the angel visits Joseph, he's afraid, and the angel has to tell them not to be. When Zechariah meets the angel in the temple, we're told that he is afraid. And when Mary and Mary visit the tomb of, uh, of Jesus after the resurrection, they show up and they see an angel and they're afraid. And this tells us something. These angels must be downright terrifying. And so don't imagine those, those fat little cherubs that we like to draw on things, or, or those sweet feminine flying women. The, popular culture depicts of these angels. Those, those things are cute, but they aren't scary. And so get in this moment for a second. Use this creativity that God's given us in our minds to imagine that you're in this dark field and, and bam, angels appear. Just imagine the fear you feel in that moment. But eventually, the angels calm them down and, and they, they tell these shepherds in verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
That's exciting. And the angel continues, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? Honestly, most of my life, most of my life, I thought the manger was the building that they were in, something like a barn. Anyone else picture that? Or am I the only one? I'm the only one. I see you're going to leave me hanging. It's not. It's a long box where all sorts of food is, is put in, often sloppy food, for a horse or a pig or some animal to eat. And, and so when the angels say, go find the king, he's, he's in a manger, that's, that's what they're talking about. And these shepherds, of course, know what a manger is. And, and you can only imagine that they know enough to think, really? No one in their right mind would put a child in a manger. That's just ghetto. So here, Christ is born in a pathetic town to poor parents, and this birth is announced to these lowly shepherds. Why all the poverty? I mean, this poverty is to show us that salvation is by grace alone. To show us that the love of God is, is free. To show us that the rich have no advantage in the kingdom of God. Now, there's no shame in having wealth. If God has gifted you or your family with, with wealth, that's, that's great. Be grateful. Seek to steward it well. But also know that what you really need in life cannot be purchased with that wealth. The forgiveness of your sin is, is a gift. A gift that came through the birth and the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And so... What does all this have to do with joy? I think the response to religion is often fear and guilt. A sense that you must somehow pay God back. In Christianity, we don't pay God back. We can't. It's a free gift. And, and the proper response to that is, is joy. That's the message of 1 Peter 1.8, which says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, joy is this disposition of gladness at the person and the work of God. And too often we focus on what God has, has not done for us or what we wish he would do for us. Often we fail to dwell on the meaning of his birth for us. In Matthew 4, 16, another prophecy I've spoken of. This one's from the book of Isaiah, and it reads, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The dawning of light is an image we don't get real well today. Usually when the sun's coming up, uh, my thoughts are, No, 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 not yet, go away, I'm still sleeping, something along those lines. Living in a, a world with electricity... We really don't understand the joy of the dawning light that it's coming. And, and I can say there's really only one moment in my life that I even began to appreciate what this means. When I was in, in high school, a senior in high school, I went on a hike one day just to get out and explore and adventure. And I went in the Sam Houston National Forest, which is 163,000 acres, which is about 250 square miles, to put that in perspective. Uh, Manhattan's like six square miles. So very large place, and when the sun begins to set, the trails disappear. Suddenly everything looks different. You have no idea where you were, and, and I find myself lost in the middle of, of literally nowhere. I, I screamed. No one responded at all. It, it was scary. 
uh, eventually in the darkness, I found this clearing of maybe 10 feet, and I thought, okay, this is the safest place. I will just lay down and wait till morning. It was nearly pitch black. The, the moon was mostly missing, a tiny little sliver. And I remember hearing coyotes and, and having this fear that copperheads or something could, could come up to me in the middle of the night and eat me or whatever they do. And I didn't sleep a bit that night, just absolutely terrified. And I just laid on the ground hour after hour, and I prayed for protection. And, and you can't imagine the joy that came over me when I could see, okay, the sun is starting to come up. I, I'm going to live. I'm not going to die. I might even make it home alive. And just this idea of, wow, like the sun meant so much because suddenly I could see the trails and I could get out of the woods back to my car. And the birth of Christ, and we talk about this as this, the dawning of salvation. It's the light coming into the world. It's reason for us to rejoice with the angels. So the past two weeks, we've, we've seen that the coming of Christ with it comes peace, and, and with it comes hope for the people of God. And, and the clear result of, of hope and, and peace in our lives gives rise to this real and lasting joy. As I mentioned before, we as, as Christians, as those who have faith in, in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should absolutely experience abundance of joy in our life. And yet that's not always true. And so I ask you, what is it that hinders your joy? Is it too much focus on your current circumstances? Is it overuse of technology? And I, I mention that because I've experienced that. Is it comparing yourself to others? Is it a, a life that's built with no margin into it? Just busyness after busyness after busyness or relational struggles that are weighing on you? And the truth is, all of those things and many, many more point to something much larger, much bigger in our, in our lives. And so if you've tuned me out at this point, I want you to, to come back in. I say that because I understand sometimes I tune people out and I want you to refocus because you need to know this. We lose joy when we take our eyes off God, off the gospel, off the salvation that we have through Christ, off our future life in his kingdom. We lose joy when our focus is off of Jesus. And one place that we wrongly place our, our focus is sin. And I say that. Perhaps it's a, a sin that today is stealing your joy. Maybe that's the big thing, stealing your joy. In this Advent season, you might need to pray what David prayed in Psalm 51. This psalm is a response to Bathsheba and some horrible, horrible sins he was committing. And in verse 12, he prays, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Our culture has this messed up idea that there is joy in sin. And I confess, there might be great pleasure in sin, but there is certainly not joy, not lasting joy. And David's very aware of what sin has taken from him. Namely, that, that sin, like a thief, has come into his life and has stolen his joy. And I would not be surprised if many sitting here today are not experiencing a lack of joy in their life because of some seemingly giant sin or, or some ongoing habitual sin. It reminds me of a story one of you shared a while back. Uh, noticing something wasn't quite right with the mood of your child. His mother asked him, what's the matter? And his response was, Nothing. I'm just guilty. Little bitty boy. 
nothing. I'm just guilty. And if, if we let our guards down, we, we might respond in the same way. I might ask you, why so glum? And your response is, I'm just guilty. That's the truth. So let me remind you, if your faith is in Christ, even that sin is forgiven. And so repent. Plead with God to restore the joy of your salvation. To find your joy in Christ and not whatever sin it is that has enslaved you. Others are also lacking joy in their, their life today because the stresses of life have overshadowed the reality of salvation. Because the reality that my sins have been forgiven really should trump everything else. So are you struggling to get along with someone? Have you lost your job? Is parenting difficult and just wearing you out? Did your car or something expensive break and you're panicked on how to replace it? You know, if your life is, is difficult right now in any way, remind yourself. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself that you are a child of God and that you are loved by your creator. And that the whole world could just crumble tonight and the truth of your salvation would still remain. I remember a challenge I, I once heard about this. Uh, the challenge was to try saying with a grumpy heart, Jesus loves me and saved me from my sin for all of eternity. That's the challenge to be able to say something like that and just be grumpy. It doesn't mean that you do walk around with a smile just placid on your face. Because there are struggles. It's a reminder that because of Jesus, there is joy. I recently read a post by a man named Gary Thomas that, that spoke about the list that people make at Christmas time about the best gifts for this or the best gifts for that, the, the 12 best gifts to get your wife. And his point was that really the absolute best gift that I can give my wife and kids is a, is a heart that overflows with joy. He says, your kids won't be led closer to the Lord and your spouse won't re-fall in love with God by getting them a new video game or outfit. Their heart won't be kick-started when you find just the right decoration to put over the fireplace. Those are all fun things to do, but the first thing to give your families and to decorate our souls with is joy. Without it, Spurgeon said, we lose the most influential aspect of faith that we have. If unbelievers could but even guess what are the secret joys of believers, they would give their eyes to share them with us. We have troubles and we admit it. We expect to have them, but we also have joys in abundance. So let me leave you with a question. It's a question that I want you to actually think about, actually answer this question, not just listen to it and then forget about it. Husbands, wives, discuss it with each other. And things slow down tonight. College students, ponder this. Ponder how you might put this into practice this week uh, or when you get back with your families over the holidays. Children, think about this and share your answers with your, your parents. And, and the question is this. What will most serve our family's joy this year? Maybe you want to consider it in a, a smaller time frame. What will serve our family's joy this, this week or this day? And once you begin to answer this question of what will most serve our family's joy, then begin to prioritize your days around us. May we find abundance of joy as we look ever to our Savior and source of true joy, Jesus Christ the Lord.